Right, so let's jump into Matthew chapter 27. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. If you're at home or with, if you're here, if you don't have a Bible, there's one over by the door, and you're welcome to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. Um, we would love for you to have a physical hard copy, even though you can get it on your phone. There's something about opening the Bible that really uh, is a beautiful thing, so we'd love for you to do that. We're in this series called The Gospel of the Cross, and our goal is to slowly walk with Matthew through the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you've maybe noticed that although I typically, when I'm preaching out of the Gospels, will use the other Gospel accounts to give a full picture, I'm, for the most part, sticking with Matthew's account. Because Matthew, in a very beautiful way, is telling this story from the perspective of Jewish people speaking to Jewish people, using the richness of the Old Testament as he lifts up the Messiah of God, the one who's come. And so we're trying to kind of stick with his account. I I would love right now to give you a recap of everywhere we've been, but we are officially too far into the series for that. So you're gonna have to go back and listen to the podcast if you wanna figure that out. Um, I don't know if you know this, but about eight minutes ago, we all standing up made an incredibly powerful countercultural statement. We were like full on punk rock there just a little bit ago. I don't know if you felt it, but, but we all stood up and we said, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you every hour I need you. Do you recognize that in this culture, it's hard to imagine a more countercultural statement than that? We live in an era of self-sufficiency and individualism that says, I don't need anybody, let alone a God that I can't even see. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. We, We live in a culture where you're glad to have someone else borrow your tools, but you don't want to have to go borrow anyone else's tools. You would way, way more quickly run out to Lowe's and spend another 150 bucks than go next door, right? And it goes from that kind of silly example all the way over to literally defining truth. What's right and what's wrong is according to me. Sociologists call it radical individualism or the age of the radical self. We have become central. A sociologist from Harvard named Robert Putnam about 20 years ago wrote a book called Bowling Alone. It was a groundbreaking book that talked about the disappearance of community within our culture, that people were isolated in a way that was unheard of in previous generations. Putnam has continued to do research, and just a few months ago, he put out some research that said this. Now, get get your head around this. Over 40% of Americans report that they don't even have one confidant. There's not one person, if they have something deep that they need to share, that they can share that with. Almost one in two Americans don't have one person to share significant things in their life with. Community has broken down. And that breaking down of community has this other outworking that we've called uh, a bunch of different names, but I've used the term tribalism, where instead of being connected to a group of people that I know and that know me, that I am the same in in some ways and different in in other ways, where we change and affect one another, instead, I affiliate with a group of people that I don't really know, but they, they become my people because they believe the one or two things that I believe, and even more importantly, they hate the same people that I hate. 
That's the way tribes work. We, uh, we orient ourselves uh, against something, and we work in, in, in opposition to the other tribe. We isolate more and more and more. So we are individualist both in our actions, but even in our affiliations. And I'd love to say, maybe you would love to say, that's outside of the church. Because, you know, the church is the church. It's built on community. If, if we don't have community, we don't have the church. And yet, it's the church too. We are becoming these people. Scott McKnight, the New Testament professor, he, he says this, the contemporary church has increasingly displaced the Bible as its foundation for knowing what to think and how to live and supplanted it with experience, desire, and preference. In other words, it has surrendered its heart to personal freedoms. So what he's saying is this. Um, we, you and I may still hold the Bible in our hands, maybe still read it now and then, uh, more often maybe listen to someone else who's read it, or have some content that you consume that comes roughly from the Bible. But what we, what we live based on, the foundation of our life, is actually what we have cultivated based on our own experiences, our own desires, and what we prefer. And it's not so much that we get rid of the rest of the Bible, we, we just kind of pass over it. Like, we build our lives on the parts we like. And we have become individuals in the process. Now you may say, that's not me. I'm not, I'm, that, that's some, somebody else. Let me tell you a way that you will likely be able to identify with that, you, that will tell you it's you. If you and I were to have a conversation, by this point, 2021, with probably any of you, just about any of you, you would be very rarely hearing phrases like, I think, or I believe. Instead, for the last 10 to 15 years, you would have heard, I feel like, and then you would make a statement. That started with younger people 10 to 15 years ago, but now it's pretty much everywhere. Instead of making a truth statement, I make an emotional statement. I feel like, which allows you to then have what you feel like, and we can both have opposing feels likes without con contradicting each other. Without knowing it, our culture subconsciously has backed away from truth. Carl Truman wrote a book called The the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, it was probably the best book written last year in 2020. I'm not necessarily suggesting you read it. It's 425 pages of very dense, dense content. Um, but uh, Truman basically takes a 300-year look at history and philosophy and art and society. And what, what Truman says is the, the rise of the self is not an isolated event that's just popped up. This is something that's been 300 years in coming. The, the philosophies that we have bought into have paved the way. Nietzsche, some of you know that name as a philosopher, made the statement over 100 years ago that God is dead. And I think Truman would say, this isn't a quote from him, but it's roughly a, a kind of summation of what he said, that, that, that society didn't agree that God was dead, so instead of God being dead, we simply passed over him and elevated ourselves into that role. It, it's not that God was eliminated. He just became secondary. Mark Sayers in his book, Disappearing Church, maybe makes the most uh, clear statement. He, he says this, 
What we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of self as the greatest authority. God is not eradicated, but you and I are enthroned. And so the question is, what happens to a group, to a society, to a people, when self is enthroned? And I don't think it's an overstatement or a stretch to say Matthew 27 is what happens. When self is enthroned and community is replaced with tribalism, we get what Matthew records for us in the first part of Matthew 27. Let me read for us the first 26 verses. Listen to the story, and as Matthew has constantly asked us to do, place yourself in the middle of it. Where where do you fit in the story? Matthew 27, starting in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, Well, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was still sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, these are hard stories to read. I confess in my own heart a desire to run through them quickly. But the discipline of sitting in these truths and remembering is so vital for us as we remember the love that you have poured out for us. And so, God, would you speak to us now by your Spirit? Would you guide us through this text? Help us to hear the the caution and, and the encouragement. Help us to be convicted by your Spirit and led forward by your Spirit. God, I pray that my words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your words that come from your spirit would remain and they would grow up in our hearts and bear much fruit. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I think Matthew is going to lay out for us in three movements the idea of self and the problem with relying on self. He's going to start with what I'm going to simply call the religion of self, moving into the confrontation with self, and then finally, if we're willing to listen, the covering of self that's offered to us. Religion of self, confrontation with self, and covering of self. It's important to remember that Matthew didn't put chapters and verses in. This is a a straight-through account that Matthew's writing. And so when we pick up in chapter 27, it comes right out of chapter 26 in Matthew's flow, in his logical flow. So remember, he ended in Matthew 26, speaking of Peter, after his three denials of Jesus, by saying, he went out and wept bitterly. And then Matthew records that Jesus is taken before Pilate, And the scene shifts to Judas, who in parallel to Peter, is feeling remorse. Peter, breaking down, weeping, has recognized his sin. Judas, maybe through equal tears, has recognized his sin. Peter repented one direction. Judas turned another direction. Judas specifically, Matthew tells us, changed his mind, the right thing to do, confesses his sin. Verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, the right thing to do, and gives back the money. Verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple. Judas changes his mind, confesses full of remorse, makes reparations. He does everything right except he doesn't turn to Jesus. He turns back to the temple. I think Matthew wants us to see an important truth. For a lot of us, feeling the weight of our sin and seeking to live differently feels like enough. But repentance is only repentance when we turn back to Jesus and Jesus puts us back on the right path. Peter did. Judas didn't. And so the response of the temple authorities, the chief priests and the elders, to Judas is uh, is painful when you read it. As a pastor, as I read it, it it hurts me. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. What happens in our lives when we see the weight of our sin, the depth of our brokenness, and we deal with it ourselves? Everything closes in on us. 
We're not designed that way. From the very beginning, the whole setup of the temple was set up because God knows we can't deal with sin on our own. That's why there's a sacrificial system. There's there's a process by which we can recognize our sin and receive forgiveness, and it comes from outside of us. It has to, because we don't have it within us to deal with our own sin. And yet Judas comes to the temple authorities, and they say, what's that to us? Deal with it yourself. And he does, in the only way that he can. He goes and hangs himself, because everything has closed in on him. And the temple authority has let him down. I think Matthew wants us to see, yes, the tragedy of Judas, which is a tragic story, but equally the tragedy of the temple. The leaders of the temple have failed to do what God has called them to do. Judas did what he was told to do within Judaism, right? He brought his sin to the temple authorities with a sacrifice, 30 pieces of silver. He's coming to say, I need to receive forgiveness, And they discard him. Why? Because the religion of self is always pragmatic. They're concerned about what works. And you know what works in the Roman Empire? Staying in good graces with the Roman Empire. They are most concerned that the people of God, the nation of Israel, stays in the good graces of Rome. And so because of their political bent... They fail to engage truth. Right and wrong mean nothing to them. Power and control are what they're after. Which is always what happens when self is enthroned. Religion becomes pragmatic. It becomes what works. I mean, think about our world. The church in so many sections has given away clear biblical truth in order to stay in line with the flow of the culture. The people of God have engaged in activity that's dramatically opposed to the truth of the scripture in order to stay in the flow of power and control. The religion of self is always pragmatic. And Judas and even Jesus are collateral damage. In light of the invisible masses of Israel, what's one poor guy who's going to go hang himself? What's one possibly innocent accused would-be Messiah when weighed against the entire nation? And so the people of God, the, the priests of God, fail to do Micah 6.8, to love justice and mercy and walk humbly with God. They've walked away from it. And instead, they've become pragmatic people with self-enthroned. And Matthew then shifts the scene. So the the priests, having assuaged their conscience by buying a field, there's so much to this, we don't have time to dive into, we'll get into that in the the podcast this week. Um, The the scene shifts to this confrontation. So Jesus now shows up in front of Pilate. Um, It's fascinating because we know a ton about Pilate through extra-biblical sources. Uh, The historical records of the day tell us about Pilate. He was, uh, it seems, a very small man. I don't mean by stature, I mean by character. Uh, He had been elevated into this place in uh, Jerusalem as kind of a stepping stone in his political career. He hated it. He hated the Jewish people, but he was placed there by Rome because there were these riots that kept popping up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was known as a place where there was uh, political upheaval. And so Pilate was put there to keep things under control. And 
Pilate, what is fascinating for us to know in this text, referred to himself and was referred to by Rome and even the Jewish people at times as the king of the Jews because he had been positioned by Rome in Jerusalem over the Jewish people. And so Jesus shows up and he says in this fascinating, um, uh, dripping with irony way, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus makes this response that he made to Judas when Judas asked him a question, to Caiaphas last week when Caiaphas asked him a question. He simply says, you have said so. Now if you remember that, that's a phrase that means the words that you say are right, but what you mean is very different than what I mean. You have said so. And then the chief priests and the elders start to ask all these questions, make all of these accusations, and Jesus is silent. And Pilate's amazed. I, I think Pilate really liked Jesus. Like, I, I don't, I, he wanted Jesus to go free not because of any moral or ethical or religious ideas, not because of justice, but just because he thought Jesus was interesting. Like, people would show up in front of, Jesus, in front of Pilate, and they would squirm because Pilate had power. And when they're being accused, they would fight back. There was, this, there was this interaction that he was so used to, and Jesus just wouldn't do it. He's just standing there. And Pilate's amazed. And he wants, I believe, for Jesus to go free because he wants to see what's going to happen. But the crowd, remember Pilate was put there by Rome so that there wouldn't be a riot. And he knows if I let Jesus go, there's going to be a riot. So what do I do? And Pilate has this brainchild. Oh, there's this thing I do. During the festival every year, I release one of the prisoners. Certainly, if I take the most notorious prisoner and pair him with this innocent man who has only been put here because of the envy of the Jewish leaders, certainly the crowd will make the right decision. Got it. And so he puts before him what we say in English is this man named Barabbas. Some of your translations may have a different name. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Uh, Barabbas literally would be Barabbas. It was uh, the son of the father. That was a last name. And Matthew makes a unique contribution to the Gospels in a variety of the early documents. And some of your translations may actually have a first name for Barabbas. Yeshua Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. It's fascinating because Pilate comes before the people and effectively says, what Jesus do you want? You want Jesus, son of the Father? Or do you want Jesus who is called the Christ? And that question is the question. Dale Bruner in his brilliant commentary pulls it out this way. Listen to the way that he says it. In every generation, the church is offered two Jesuses one of whom is a popular, nationalistic, hate-the-enemy liberator. It is the responsibility of every congregation in every time to discern the Jesus who is truest to the canonical sources. That just means truest to the scriptures. And so the most relevant to the deepest, though not always obvious, needs of the time. The contribution of the Barabbas story is it's teaching the church her main trial in every age— her interpretation of Jesus. When we read this story, what should be in front of us is which Jesus do you want? Which Jesus do you choose? Because one Jesus lines up with what makes sense to me. One Jesus likes the things that I like and hates the things that I hate. 
One Jesus seems to be okay, full of grace and mercy towards the sins that I am most prone to and seems to be very opposed to the sins that other people are prone to. That Jesus tends to vote the way that I vote, like the people that I like, and engage the things that I engage. That Jesus is very easily understood. This other Jesus, I don't know how much you've studied him, but he is confounding. I, I can never figure out what he's going to do. Like, I've read these gospels over and over and over again, and still I get into a situation, a modern day situation, and I think, what would Jesus do? I'm not sure. Like, sometimes he seems like he's a flaming liberal. Sometimes he seems like he's a staunch conservative. Sometimes he seems like he's all full of love. Sometimes he seems to jump in with a hammer. You're like, who is this guy? And following that Jesus requires us to stay so close that we can hear him because he doesn't act like us. Which Jesus do we choose? It's constantly the question before the church. Which Jesus will we follow? But there's another twist to what's happening here. These two Jesuses being put in front of the crowd are also a question of who goes free. Think of it this way. If they choose the other way, Jesus called the Christ, Jesus goes free and Barabbas is still captive. And you and I are still captive. Do you see that freeing Barabbas is the only way that we get freedom? N.T. Wright says it this way. Barabbas represents all of us. When Jesus dies, the sinners go free. We all go free. That, after all, is what a Passover story ought to be all about. I don't know about you, but by the time I get to this point in the story, in my Gentile mind with my Gentile eyes, I forget it's Passover. Like, it's, it is unbelievable to me, truly unbelievable to me, that the leaders of Judaism went through this entire trial. They will walk with Jesus to the cross. They will stand watching him suffer and die, and then they will go home and eat the Seder meal. Like, I can't get my head around that. But that's what happened. This is the Passover day. Scholars are almost uniform in believing that Jesus and his disciples in what we call the Last Supper celebrated at the first possible moment they could, even though the traditional Passover celebration would have been at sundown on the day of Passover. They celebrated at sundown the day before. And so during the Passover day, this whole thing is unfolding and Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. Now, even though I would have forgotten, no Jewish person reading Matthew's account in Matthew 27 would have forgotten that it was the Passover. Do you know why? Because there is so much blood through this passage. Do you notice that as you read it? Like Judas starts to talk about blood, and then the chief priests start to talk about blood, and then Pilate's talking about blood, and by the time we get to the end, there's this rhythm that has built up almost to a frenzy where the crowd declares, he let his blood be on us and on our children. Passover was a blood festival. And the people were engaging in this bloody back and forth. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Matthew, at the end of this entire process, allows now the crowd to be implicated as well. 
And so there's this question that we're faced with. Who killed Jesus? According to Matthew, as we read Matthew's account, who killed Jesus? Did the disciples who abandoned him? The chief priests who set him up? Pilate who convicted him? The crowd who condemned him? Who who killed Jesus? From the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, if you just read through, if you were with us back at the beginning, or if you would read through the Gospel of Matthew, what you find that Matthew's doing is constantly asking you and I where we fit in the scene. Like all the way back, before the Sermon on the Mount, we were asking the question, are, are you one of the disciples? Are you one of the crowd? Are you one of the religious leaders? Matthew's constantly begging the question. He always sets the scenes with these different groups of people so that we would imagine where we fit in the scene. And now, at the the crisis point of the gospel, he's doing the same thing. Where do you fit? Who killed Jesus? And the answer is all of us. All of us did. The disciples killed him because they abandoned him. They denied him. They betrayed him. The crowd killed Jesus because they condemned him. The religious leaders killed Jesus because they were afraid of him. Pilate killed Jesus because he was afraid of everybody else. We all did. And so I believe as we're reading through this, Matthew wants us to hear coming out of our very own mouths, his blood be on us and on our children. We're all there. This is another one of those narratives in Matthew where there's only one hero And he's on his way to the cross. And the rest of us are equally bad and broken and in need. As we read it, that haunting phrase, his blood be on us and on our children, should be resonating in your mind as though it's coming out of your mouth. This is us. And yet, it's Passover. Remember the Passover story, what they would be telling one another that evening as they sat around the table? That there was a lamb that was killed, and the blood was drained out, and that blood was taken and painted over the doorposts of the houses so that the angel of death would pass over them because the blood covering would protect them. Let his blood be on us and on our children. I believe that Matthew wants us to hear both the conviction of guilt and the joy of freedom. That it would be both our honest admission with pain, let his blood be on us and on our children, and our earnest hope in prayer, may his blood be on us and on our children. Because apart from this death, we have no life. And so let his blood be on us and on our children. How do we avoid moving into self as center, enthroning self, moving back and forth between individualism and tribalism? We recognize that we are these people. We all are asking him, may his blood be on us and on our children. May we be identified by him alone 
may we be people who are unified by him alone. So, so what do we do? Well, I think every account of the passion that Matthew records for us is inviting us to repent. Everyone. He's calling us to recognize over and over and over again that we need to turn back to him. Not just confess like Judas into a hopeless sense of I need to get better but I can't. But to repent like Peter coming back to Jesus again and saying, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. He's calling us to repent. And he's calling us to come back to Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus called the Messiah, Jesus of the scriptures, that we would be people who are Christians without any adjectives in front, just Christians, not progressive Christians or conservative Christians, but Christians. We're people who are identified by Jesus. And then we connect with one another as we learn more and more who this Jesus is. And our journey continues to be focused squarely on him, that we would move forward as a people who disagree on lots of stuff, who wrestle with lots of things, who are equally guilty as we together walk in freedom towards Christ. Let his blood be on us and on our children. And so I want to invite you to turn each week to turn back to Jesus, to recognize you are both culpable and forgiven. And so we enter into that forgiveness today. I'm going to pray over us, and then as the worship team comes, they're going to give us an opportunity to respond, and that response will allow us to have a heart that's settled, and then a heart that speaks in the, in the goodness of God, that we're identified by Him alone, that Jesus is center and supreme. Let me pray for us. Jesus, these are hard stories, and they're full of hard truth, but it's your hard truth that makes soft hearts, and so God, would you soften our hearts to you. Even this moment, as we wrestle with what it means to be your people, identified solely by you, would you, in your grace, point out those areas that you desire to have us release our grip on so that we would be identified by you alone. Thank you that the choice of Barabbas meant that we would go free. It, it puts a, a weight on us, but a joy within us because you have given us life. So Jesus, thank you that you have drank the cup to the bottom and that you have given us freedom. May we walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.